as a, has been introduced already, this, this sermon is on uh, the glory of God. And I, I think plenty, uh, although I could always do better, I'm sure, about glorifying God. I think far less about the glory of God, say, uh, as an attribute of him. We speak about uh, God's attributes in sort of uh, theological circles from time to time. You know, his, his holiness, his perfection, his glory, uh, the, his deity, the fact that he is God. We speak about these as attributes of God. And so, as I say, the, the glory of God is one of his attributes. Furthermore, and, and track with me, um, we would say of the glory of God that it is one of his, at least in part, communicable attributes, which means that to some extent, not to the, the fullest of extents, but to some extent, God's glory is a, an, an aspect of him, an attribute of him, which his creation, especially us, his, his human beings, the, the pinnacle of his creation, which we, we share in. Uh, not in the sense that it is our glory, uh, but in the sense that God creates us and, and puts his glory into the world, and we reflect that back to him. And you'll be uh, familiar, I imagine, with the, the five solas or sole of the, the Reformation, uh, being sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola scriptura, and finally soli deo gloria put into English, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. All this, the, the, the whole of the, the salvific, the whole nature of salvation is to the glory of God alone. Similarly, uh, Charles Spurgeon's or the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, depending on which one you, uh, you fly with, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer comes, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The main point of your existence, the reason why you are here, is to glorify God. And the amazing thing is that along with that glorifying, our chief end, is to enjoy him forever. God would have been entirely just in creating us and saying, glorify me, and he could have made it a particularly unpleasurable thing to do. Uh, but glorify God and enjoy him forever. What, a, what an amazing two things to have coupled together. So the whole of the salvific process, which uh, arguably is the main narrative of Scripture and the main point of our existence, our chief end, is to glorify God. In further uh, introduction of the topic, the word uh, doxa, which is the, the Greek word, the main one translated <laughs> as glory in the New Testament, appears 100, around about 170 times in the New Testament. Uh, and in the, the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, around about 270 times. So 170 times in the New Testament, about 270 in the, uh, in the Greek translation, at least, of the Old Testament. Similarly, the the Hebrew word kavod, which is the, the main word translated as, as glory in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament, uh, is used about 200 times. So putting uh, 
those two together, the main words translated into English as glory appear around 370 times in Scripture. And I stress that that, those are just the two main words. There are plenty of other words which encompass what we might uh, say is glory, uh, which I haven't included in that sum. So my Bible, doing a bit of maths, uh, is 1,252 pages long from, uh, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That means that the, just those main words translated as glory, and again stressing that there are, are numerous others which we could include within the concept, but just using those words, the word glory appears once every about three and a half pages. So if I was to, to hold up what three and a half pages looks like in, in my Bible, it would look very, very thin. In fact, you may not even be able to see it uh, sitting a distance off. So that to say that this concept of glory appears rather a lot. Um, clearly, it is uh, something of a focus for God, especially, once again, being our chief end. And similar, and this is perhaps one of the main things that, that I've been uh, reminded of as I've studied through this topic this week, uh, similar to God's holiness, which of course we've gone through in the last couple of weeks, rightly understanding God's glory makes us realize how other we are to God. It gives us an appropriate sense of discomfort in the thought of being in close proximity to God which isn't to say that we ought not uh, to have uh, intimacy with God, but it is to say that we ought not to do that lightly. Uh, there ought to be a, a fear of the Lord uh, that comes as we uh, draw close to him, as we consider him. And in a, to use a, uh, a metaphor which falls short in at least a thousand ways, I'm sure, um, I remember uh, I used to work on a, a chicken egg farm um, and... At any particular time on this farm, there would be between, say, uh, 20,000 to 30,000 chickens. Um, and if you think that's a lot, that is a drop in the ocean compared to many chicken farms, but that's unrelated to the topic. Um, and I, I had worked all day, as I recall, for, uh, for the standards of that farm. At the end of the day, I was relatively clean, but I stress relatively clean, having worked among that many chickens all day. Uh, and uh, Tracy, my wife and I, uh, we, we had, spontaneously had dinner in Kingston, which if you're familiar with the area, um, is, is not, the, not the lower class uh, type area of Canberra. It's a relatively hoity-toity kind of place to be. Uh, and so here am I in my dirty, compared to everybody else there, uh, dirty uh, chicken farm clothes, having, having uh, dinner in this restaurant and the whole time I was feeling relatively uncomfortable really. Um, it was a lovely dinner I'm sure but I, I remember sitting there feeling quite uncomfortable in my, my dirty boots and jeans and whatever else I had on. And as I say that is a, a metaphor which falls short in a thousand ways uh, but you can see how uh, being in a such a, a lowly state can I say in a, a hoity-toity place which we can uh, very broadly used to describe glorious, in a glorious place, there was that appropriate sense of discomfort. Something here doesn't fit. And as I say, once again, that's a, a metaphor which falls short in a thousand ways, um, but it perhaps uh, pokes us along in the right direction. So, 
to define our terms, which I think is important in any uh, understanding of a topic. Uh, doxa, that Greek word, is defined as glory, as very apparent in a wide application, literal or figurative, objective or subjective. It could be translated as, as dignity, glory, honor, praise, worship, glory, glorious, uh, and even as dignity. Calvo, the, the word from the Old Testament translated as glory, uh, is defined as, uh, interestingly, properly weight. Glory has this, this weight to it. But only figuratively, in a good sense. Splendor or copiousness. Glorious, glory, and honor. And when we see that word, calvo, translated into uh, English in the Old Testament, you would see it as glory, honor, glorious, gloriously, honorable. And it, it has uh, in its usage a, a high emphasis on honor. And I think that's useful in terms of us understanding it today because I think in more day-to-day -day speak, we would tend to identify with the concept of honor, perhaps more so than we would uh, in glory. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't tend to use glory in a part of my everyday speak very much. So these definitions that I've given, they illustrate, as I started off by saying, uh, glory as an attribute of God. And that'll be our primary focus today with uh, the, the glorifying of God uh, being our focus in the message next week. The word or, or the concept, it also includes what we might say a, a moral or an ethical component and hence has quite a relatedness to, to holiness. In fact, a, a verse which I'm sure you'll be quite familiar with, Romans 3.23, says, For all have sinned, and so are unholy, and fall short of the glory of God. So God's glory is perfectly holy. And to sin, and hence be unholy, is to fall short of his glory. And some translations use the word glorious in Exodus 15.11, where it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic or glorious in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So the holiness of God is glorious, and we glorify God by our walking in holiness. And finally, before we get into the key texts, um, there is also uh, the sense of the word glory, which can, which can be used of God's creation and what God's creation does, which is the main point for next week, but just to introduce it. Uh, creation in its being and in its doing of things well reflects glory back to God. It glorifies him. So uh, key texts, and I'll... Well, I'll encourage you to turn to, to Romans 11, and we'll do verses 33 to 36. I know Andrew's read them already, but uh, read those verses already, but for the sake of recap. So these verses come in the context of Paul discussing God's saving of Israel, uh, and it's a, a somewhat complex plan, though if you take it sort of uh, bite by bite, it's, it's easy enough to follow. Uh, but he appropriately ends with his exclamation here in verses 33 to 36. 
and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift, sorry, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I particularly want to focus on just that last bit in verse 36. For from him, through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From him are the Greek words ech autu. So ech being the from, autu being him. And I, I was delighted to find, uh, in one, again, one of my previous jobs, speaking about my occupations this sermon, uh, it was a, a fertilizer spreading company and we had big trucks that would pick up loads of fertilizer or dirt, gravel, whatever it might be. And on the, the load dockets, we would write that it came X Golden, X the Hunter Valley, X yeah, yes. Wherever it had come from, we would use this word X. Uh, and that is a sort of uh, anglicized version uh, of the word ech here in the Greek. Just uh, a little bit of a further understanding of the word. But all things were created by God. All things are then from him, are ex him. All things are through him. God is the channel through which are all things. God has sovereignly ordained all of history. And, and can I make the point that not only has he ordained all of quote-unquote religious history, uh, but all of history is ordained by God. Hence, all things are through him and to him. God is the point that is reached or entered into of all things. All things are to him. The direction of all of history is to him. You've probably heard, the, uh, heard it said that uh, history is his story. I'm not really sure that's the, the etymology of the word uh, seriously, but it, it, it's nice, it works. History is his story. All things physical and all things non-physical ultimately have their direction and purpose in glorifying God. I think that's probably something which we tick the theological box and go, yes, that's a correct statement, but let me say it again. All things physical and all things non-physical ultimately have their direction and purpose in glorifying God. And to further expand uh, our thoughts in that regard, salvation and damnation are all to the glory of God, as hard as it might be for us as finite human beings to accept. Romans 9, 22 to 23, don't turn there, uh, says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? God is glorified as he shows mercy to some in salvation. God is glorified as he exercises judgment in the damnation of others. We may not be able to understand it, but God is, is far high and above uh, all of our thinking and all of our plans. He is glorified in it all. 
And such a view of God's glory like that expands our, our perspective vastly. When we understand that God is glorified not just in the, the quote-unquote happy things, not just in the pleasant things, but also in those things less naturally tasteful uh, to human beings, we, we have a far wider view of God's glory. So from, through, and to him are all things, and hence uh, Paul appropriately ends uh, that section, to him be glory forever. So the point I'm drawing from that passage perhaps mainly is that God is glorious in his creation, ordaining, sustaining, and being the goal of all things. Um, turn with me, if you will, to, to Exodus 33. And it is a, a reasonable section that I'm going to read from verses 17 to 23. So you might benefit from following along. So this follows Moses requesting that God himself would go with Israel uh, so that they are a distinct people. Certainly something which was on my mind as we uh, went to, to do evangelism yesterday. You know, Lord, go with us so that we are a distinct people, that we, so that we are obviously separate. Uh, but here we are in, in verse 17 of Exodus 33. And Yahweh said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And you might think that if anybody had a shot of seeing the glory of the Lord, if anybody had a shot of seeing uh, the Lord in that absolutely fiercely intimate way, face to face like that, surely it would be Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, this man who had been uh, set apart by God, who had done uh, so much uh, good, arguably, in, in leading God's people out of Egypt. You know, surely if anybody had a shot, it was Moses. But God says to him, man shall not see me and live. This is the, the kind of gloriousness that our God has. Man shall not see me and live. The extreme, weighty, glorious, splendorous, majestic, holy, praiseworthiness of God is such that man cannot see him and live. And just to be very, very clear, man and womankind cannot see him and live. Man is to pursue the glorifying of God in all life, his chief end. But to see that glory from the very source thereof is, is too much. It's too wonderful a thing, too glorious a thing uh, for mankind to do. And so the point, pure and simple, uh, is God is so glorious, man cannot see him and live. Flick over a few books with me to Deuteronomy 5.
read from, uh, from verse 22. It comes just after the the Ten Commandments are are reiterated. These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, And he said, Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Yahweh our God any more, we shall die. For who is there? Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that Yahweh our God will say and speak to us all that Yahweh our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it, showing Moses as the mediator. And Yahweh heard your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. The people uh, at this point rightly understood that God is, is very great, glorious, holy, and that they are not. They are fearful to be in such a place of proximity with God. And you can imagine, like, I've in times past when I've thought about this passage, uh, googled uh, Mount Sinai, and you can look at pictures of it, as you can of most of the world. Uh, And you just, you look at those pictures and you imagine that mountain shaking with the glory and the holiness of God and it just aflame with the presence of God and smoke rising up from it. I, I would be pretty frightened. And rightly so. They have, uh, the people of Israel, what you might say as a, an Isaiah 6 verse 5 moment, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. They say, Woe are we, for we are lost, a people of unclean lips, and we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and we have heard the voice of God. He has shown us his glory and his greatness. And so I'll ask you a a rhetorical question. Do we consider the glory of God too lightly? Just building on what we've gone through so far, do we consider, or do you consider, to make it even more personal, do you consider the glory of God too lightly? And I'm going to say that uh, even, even those among us and even those of the greatest theologians in the world who have the, the most profound understanding of God's glory would still fall far short uh, of understanding it in any kind of completeness. Uh, and so the answer to the question is always going to be yes. <coughs> Do we consider the glory of God too lightly? Absolutely. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we should give up on it, um, but it does say that we will never understand it in its completeness until we see him face to face. It is good 
and right with this, uh, to complement this consideration. It is good and right to desire to glorify God in all of life, in the everyday. But I think it's important, as indeed I discovered in my own study this week, uh, it's important to not let the everydayness of our glorifying of God make us lose sight of the fearfulness of God's glory as an attribute of Him. Again, they are, of course, related, uh, but God's glory as an attribute uh, of Him is uh, distinct yet related to our, our reflecting of that glory back to Him uh, in the fact we are His creation and in then what we do with that. So I would encourage you to, to consider God's glory as an attribute of Him, not just in how we reflect that back to Him. God is glorious. He doesn't rely on us in order to be so. And if we uh, only consider glorifying of God, we lose sight somewhat of the fact that God is glorious regardless of the fact whether we exist or not. So two points from uh, Deuteronomy 5. Firstly, God is to be feared in his gloriousness. And secondly, meditate upon God's glory as an attribute of him. And the last verse to go through is Isaiah 42, verse 8. And turn there if you want to, but I'll read it now. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. God does not share his glory, uh, nor my praise to carved idols. Jesus in his, uh, this is a, an apologetic uh, application of this verse in uh, showing that Jesus truly is God. Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Sorry, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. With what? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the apologetic value is this. And it shows that Jesus truly is God. He is not uh, merely a, a creation of God. He's not merely a wonderful man or a, a prophet, as indeed we had discussions of yesterday with the, the Muslim gentleman. He's not just this, but he is truly God. Because we have God in the Isaiah passage doesn't share his glory with another. Now we have Jesus asking to be glorified with the glory that I or he had in the beginning before the world existed. So we have two real options. We either have a contradiction in Scripture, which is impossible because God does not contradict himself, or the fact that Jesus shared this glory with God before the world existed, and God not sharing glory with, one another, with anybody else, shows that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, uh, truly is God. So there's, I suppose, an apologetic value uh, to come back to the, the main point of the sermon uh, God is zealous for his own glory. He doesn't share it with those who are not worthy of it. He doesn't share it. 
because none are worthy of it but him. And ordinarily we might hear something like that and uh, from a, a human standpoint we think, oh, that's, that's awful, selfish, you know, God not sharing. And as a parent who, who has to parent two small boys and constantly encourage them to share with one another, uh, it sounds sort of odd to, to hear. But in fact, it is a, a very, very good thing and only a natural thing that God doesn't share his glory with another. Because unlike any other being, and I mean that in the, the vastest way possible, unlike any other being, God alone is worthy to seek his own glory. He is worthy not to share his glory with another, and he is not selfish in this pursuit. God, as we discussed in Romans 11, uh, is the very source of all things. He is the very standard and definition of what is good and glorious. And so I say it would be uh, not just off-putting, but reprehensible to consider that God would share his glory with another. It'd be, and again, this is a, another metaphor which falls short in a a thousand ways, or at least maybe a thousand and six, I've counted them, um, that in, in the wine, wine world, there are, are numerous, I'm sure, amazing uh, champagne varieties, but a particular couple that I know of are, are Veuve Clicquot, Dom Perignon, and Moet or Moe, um, depending on how you want to pronounce it. These, these three, among numerous others, are particularly amazing uh, bottles of champagne. Uh, and yes, you can buy them from, uh, from the bottle store for hundreds of dollars, but there are certain vintages which even go up to, to tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars per bottle. Now, in a way that falls short of, of the full extent, as I say, to, to couple one of those amazing bottles of, for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars per bottle, to serve that with, say, a bottle taken from Aldi for uh, you know three, four, five dollars would just be unthinkable. It would be so bizarre to put these two things together. And in a, a somewhat, only somewhat similar way, for God to, to share his glory with those who are not worthy uh, of having his glory shared with would be a, a reprehensible thing. And the amazing thing in considering all of this uh, that I find, or one of the amazing things, is that it's reprehensible for God to share his glory with another, and yet it is in uh, our best interests as the creation of God that he doesn't. As I started with, uh, close to the start anyways, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It could well have been that God made glorifying him very unenjoyable, uh, but he has made it a joyful thing. And so it is, it is in our best interests that God does not share his glory with another. Glorifying him is an enjoyable, it is a good thing, and he ought not to share his glory with another. It's, it's unthinkable the more you think through it. So the conclusion. And I want to plant a, a, a seed of thought for next week's sermon, this this quote, which is sometimes quoted to, to Martin Luther, but that's debated. Um, nonetheless, it's a great quote, and it's illustrative of a, a greater concept, which we'll explore in more depth. But to plant a seed of thought, 
whoever said it, says this, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I'm not going to do anything further with that. I'm just going to leave that in your head to grow during the week. But the points from the texts, which we, uh, we went through just now. God is glorious in his creation, ordaining, sustaining, and being the goal of all things, the chief end. God is so glorious Man cannot see him and live. God is to be feared in his gloriousness. And my encouragement to you to meditate upon God's glory as an attribute of him, as opposed to just our glorifying of him. And lastly, God alone is worthy of all glory. God doesn't share his glory with another. And so as we now... Uh, move into a time of, of sharing around the Lord's table, of, of sharing communion together. Uh, with this view of God's glory established, Hebrews 10, 19 to 23 ought to astound us. Um, and it speaks of our being able to draw near to God in the holy place, in, in the place where his glory was said to dwell in the old covenant in the temple. Uh, and just... Uh, whether you read along or whether you just even close your eyes and listen as I read the passage, just encourage you to, with the view of glory, God's glory that we've established, consider this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, you are, as we've, as we've discussed in, in considering your holiness and subsequently now in your glory, you are so other to how we naturally are. And Lord, I, I pray that we would be acutely aware of that and that our awareness of that, as I suppose in some ways the quote-unquote bad news, would make the good news of what you've done through the cross all the more, uh, all the more fantastic to us. The fact that we who are, are so far below you, it's not even funny, are able to draw near to you in your very presence through the blood of Jesus, the powerful blood of Jesus. May that be uh, freshly impressioned upon our minds, our hearts, our souls, upon the whole of our being. Lord, I pray that this week we would, uh, yes, glorify you in all we do, uh, but that we would meditate upon your glory as an attribute of you. We would consider this uh, in whether it be a new way or just a renewed way, uh, Lord, bring these thoughts to our mind that they might uh, do their proper part. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.